The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Squawk Box. Uh, we're in London, of course, with Karen and Jeff and myself, Steve Sedgwick, here in Riga, Latvia. These are your headlines. Russia is ramping up its shelling of Ukrainian cities, but says it has offered ceasefires in some areas, with Kiev accusing Moscow of firing on fleeing citizens and President Zelensky vowing to fight on. Yes, I'm staying here in Kiev on Bankova Street. I'm not hiding and I'm not afraid of anyone. I'll stay here as long as it's necessary to win our patriotic war. The Dow drops nearly 800 points, the S&P posting its worst day since October 2020, and the Nasdaq dips into bear market territory, while the selling continues in Asia, with mainland Chinese stocks leading the losses. Russia's Deputy Prime Minister says an embargo on the country's oil price could push crude prices above $300 a barrel as Germany and the UK appear to back away from talk of an all-out ban on imports. You can't simply close down uh, use of, uh, of oil and gas uh, overnight, uh, even from, from Russia. That's, that's, that's obviously not something that uh, every country around the world can, can do. Uniper writes down 987 million euros in loans to Nord Stream 2 as the German utility takes a full impairment loss on the suspended pipeline project. So, very good morning, everybody. Very good morning, Karen. Good morning. Lots of fast-moving developments, not only in financial markets, but on the diplomatic front here and also on the ground in Ukraine. So let's just bring you up to date with where we stand here. Russian forces have stepped up missile strikes on cities around Ukraine, but troops have failed to make, quote, any noteworthy progress in claiming further ground. This according to the Pentagon. Aid officials say Mariupol in the south has been hardest hit, with residents enduring frequent bombardments while suffering food and water shortages. Shelling has also intensified in Kharkiv and Melitopol, where Russian ground troops are facing significant resistance from Ukrainian forces. Well, Russia's defense ministry has said it will create humanitarian corridors from five Ukrainian cities today. Authorities will attempt to evacuate more civilians from Kiev, Chernihiv, Sumy, Kharkiv and Mariupol with the idea that these people move to Russia for safety. Well, that idea has drawn criticism from Kiev after Ukrainian authorities previously rejected options that direct people into Russia or Belarus. The corridors are due to open at 7 a.m. GMT. Ukrainian and Russian officials have held their third round of talks in Belarus with both sides acknowledging that little progress has been made. It comes as each country's foreign ministers agree to face-to-face -face talks in Turkey on Thursday in a bid to find a peace agreement. Uh, Mikhail Podahyalk, 
a Ukrainian presidential advisor who took part in negotiations in Belarus, said he was confident of eventually finding a compromise. As for the main political tract, which includes talks on both a ceasefire, armistice and end of hostilities in general, intensive consultations will continue. At this moment there are no results which would significantly improve the situation yet. Nevertheless, consultations will continue and we will get the result. The leaders of France, Germany and the UK along with the United States have reiterated their intent to, to provide Ukraine with security, economic and humanitarian assistance as Russia's invasion enters its 12th day. They also pledged to proceed with more sanctions on the Kremlin in a bid to raise the cost of the war for Russia. Talks are continuing over a potential ban on oil imports from Russia. However, German Chancellor Olaf Scholz has pushed back against the calls, warning of the impact to millions of energy consumers. Ukrainian Foreign Minister Dmitry Kuleba has called for direct talks between President Zelensky and Russia's Vladimir Putin. Kuleba added that it was clear that Putin is the person who makes the final decisions. It comes as Vladimir Zelensky issued a global appeal for help and called for Kiev to get more weapons. The world should react decisively and, most importantly, quickly. The world has to stop the government of Russia, it has to stop the shelling, it has to stop the everyday bombing. If Western politicians are scared, we're saying let us do it. Give us the Ukrainians, warplanes and fighter jets, which we can use to protect ourselves and our children. Give Ukraine anti-missile defences to guarantee that no one will blast our nuclear power plants and Ukraine and all of Europe won't be destroyed. Well, France's Emmanuel Macron and Germany's Olaf Scholz will hold talks with China's Xi Jinping later today over Ukraine. China has so far refused to fully condemn Russia's invasion, and the two leaders will hope to convince Xi to play a more decisive role in bringing the conflict to an end. The diplomacy will continue later today. UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson is set to host the leaders of the Visegrad Four, with all four countries seeing a surge in refugees from Ukraine. Meanwhile, in Latvia today, NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg will meet with Latvia's Prime Minister, uh, Canada's Justin Trudeau and the Spanish Prime Minister Pedro Sanchez. Well, U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken is set to depart Latvia later today and will travel on to Estonia for the final stop of his European tour. Steve joins us uh, from Riga this morning. Uh, and Steve, just give us a sense of, of what the reaction has been to Antony Blinken's tour so far and what we might expect to hear today. Yeah, good morning, Jeff. Anthony Blinken and his entourage have literally just driven past. Unfortunately, it was in the break, so we didn't catch it uh, live on camera for you. But uh, yeah, absolutely fascinating up here. Of course, the, the region wants reassurance. This is perhaps uh, a week apart of, of the alliance in terms of uh, the geography. We've talked a, lot, a little bit about that over the last couple of days. And there's real concern uh, down in Lithuania, where we were yesterday, here in uh, Riga, in the capital of Latvia, and of course up in Tallinn, Estonia, uh, where Mr Blinken will be going. So there's real concern uh, about the commitment levels about the support from the US, from the NATO for this region and also for Ukraine as well because where goes Ukraine the um, Baltic nations are very concerned that that could be the next for them as well and I'll just give you an example of, of, of a parallel because I think it's very important to bring on the local parallels by the way I'm outside the foreign minister where I'm going to speak to the foreign minister 
in about an hour's time. So look, one of the pretexts for Putin going into Crimea and going into the Donbass was to protect the Russian-speaking population, to protect the local uh, Russians who feel they're being subjugated by, uh, dare I say it, dastardly forces uh, in Kiev. And I paraphrase that. He uses much stronger language. Well, here in Latvia, at least 25% of the population considers themselves ethnic Russian. It was around about 35% when this country got independence from the Soviet era in 1991. It's gone down to about 25% as well. But the pretext of supporting local Russian minorities was used in Ukraine, especially in Donetsk uh, and that part of the world and could well be used again uh, in somewhere such as Latvia. And that is why the Latvians are especially sensitive uh, to the protestations from Moscow about protecting ethnic minorities in there. So just, just to kind of bear that in mind, a little bit of local gen for you here on that. Well, right, OK, back down in Lithuania yesterday, uh, I attended the Blinken press conference. It was very interesting, once again, just reassuring his allies here that every inch of NATO territory is sacrosanct. These are his words. Every inch of NATO territory will be defended as per Article 5, which I discussed with our viewers uh, back on Friday when I was at the NATO meeting. I then afterwards, immediately afterwards, spoke to the Lithuanian foreign minister, that's Gabrielis Landsbergis. I think he's quite hawkish, and I asked him both about the US commitment to Ukraine, NATO commitment there, and indeed the commitment to this region as well. I started off by saying, can NATO do more in Ukraine? This is what Landsbergis had to say to me. I can say that Lithuania's position was always very clear, that uh, any country that has means should be providing what it can. Uh, to my knowledge, um, many of allies in the NATO are, are doing just that. On the bilateral basis, they are making decisions uh, to what can be, can be supplied. Um, to add to that, I think that uh, the public speculations uh, about uh, supplying, who is supplying what, what kind of weaponry is not uh, necessarily the most helpful, neither to the country who is doing the supplying, nor to Ukrainians themselves. But at the moment, sir, what the supplies to Ukraine are doing are slowing the Russian advance. They're not thwarting the Russian advance. They're not turning it back, sir. There needs to be more uh, different kind of weaponry, perhaps, going into Ukraine. I fully agree with you. So does that include fighters, sir? I, I say that I will repeat what I've said, that uh, any kind of uh, equipment that the country is able to, uh, to provide and uh, not limited to, uh, to what you've mentioned, uh, should be provided. There are reports from Ukraine. They say they, that up to 10,000 Russian servicemen have been killed and a huge number of uh, tanks, armoured vehicles, fighters uh, have been attacked and destroyed. Do you believe what the Ukrainians are saying on that kind of scale? Because if that is true, then that are, they are huge losses for the Russians. That would be probably one of the uh, most casualty-heavy uh, Russian military uh, attack against any, any country. Uh, probably one of the bloodiest wars that Russia has ever participated or started. So uh, that means that it was very badly um, prepared, uh, poorly equipped, and now it is poorly, poorly managed. Uh, but that doesn't mean as well that we should be taking it lightly. It means that more, more uh, supplies, as we've talked before, uh, and equipment need to be uh, provided to Ukrainians. Is anything that's being done at the moment, do you believe, enough to stop Putin? Uh, again, as, as with any, until the point he hasn't stopped, we need to keep, uh, keep pushing for more. And that goes for sanctions as well. 
That was uh, Gabriela Stansberg speaking to me at the Lithuanian Foreign Ministry yesterday morning in Vilnius. We are now in Riga, Latvia. As I say, with the Foreign Ministry over my left shoulder, uh, I will be speaking in hopefully an hour's time to Edgar Rinkovic. Now, he's a very experienced diplomat here. He's actually been in place since 2011 as well and has long called for a permanent NATO presence from the US and others uh, here in Latvia as well. So it'll be very interesting to tap into what he uh, thinks about the Blinken and the US administration commitment. I, I will just give a bit more detail. Uh, I'd say the Riga Castle, a beautiful building, just a little bit further down here as well. Uh, that is where the Sec Gen of uh, NATO is going to be later on as well, meeting uh, the Prime Minister and the President at some stage today. But very interesting, Karen and Jeff. You've got Pedro Sanchez and you've got Justin Trudeau uh, in Riga today. Now, they're going to be visiting uh, an army base as well, uh, the Adazi uh, military base as well. Now, both the Canadians and indeed the Spanish have beefed up their troops Truth pres- uh, truth p- p- trooper presence here uh, over recent days as well. But what um, it would be very interesting is if Mr Trudeau and Ottawa are able to give a commitment about a permanent commitment to this region as well because they've got a five-year commitment which ends in March next year. It seems almost inconceivable that the Canadians and the Spanish won't be keeping uh, enhanced presence here, of course. And I should also add uh, that the US has upped its troops in the region as well. You've got Apache helicopters up here uh, in Riga as well uh, and 1,400 troops as well. The Spanish have now got up to 500 troops. The Canadians uh, the best part of the Enhanced Forward uh, Presence Battle Group, of which they've got at least 600 troops there as well. So there is a lot going on, Jeff and Karen, uh, here in Riga today. Back to you. Uh, Steve, terrific. Thank you very much for running us through the developments. And I just want to dovetail off the geopolitical reassessment. I know Hungary was also looking at its relationship with Russia and the consequences for its election. But I want to take you to the reassessment on markets because it felt as though Wall Street uh, stepped back and had another look at the situation yesterday away from a geopolitical conflict that they've been watching to one that could have wider ramifications for the economy, particularly as we see this escalating oil price, a very strong spike again to start off the week for Brent and US crude. And this meant uh, US markets fell fairly aggressively. Again, it was concentrated around the Nasdaq. You could see that pullback of 3.6%, a big drop there. Other parts of the market, though, also caught up in uh, concerns around the oil price, but also sanctions. And if you look at some of the big components for the Dow, for instance, the one of the biggest decliners was American Express. That stock down roughly 8%. This is it decided to pull away from US operations. So the impact is very much being felt at a stock level as well as a broader one. Some of the big banking stocks elsewhere reversing. But one of the big props has been the energy complex. And that includes the energy stocks on the market. So Chevron, actually one of the biggest point contributors to the Dow. So you can see it at that single stock name. I want to take it to the banks and you can see more broadly how this played out across those US banks. One of the big interpretations for a lot of fund managers here is just how aggressive will the Fed be because don't forget a few weeks back before this invasion we were talking about the potential for more aggressive rate path from the central bank than what the market had anticipated that effectively every meeting by the Fed six meetings could be live meetings now is the situation and the impact on oil is being reassessed I think a lot of saying oh, well even if we get a March rate hike what does that mean for the trajectory here and that means potentially you take some of the the earnings potential off the banks as you see activity slightly lower but also the margin story compromised. You can see Bank of America down 6.3%, Morgan Stanley falling, uh, the likes of City slightly more protected uh, compared to, say, Wells Fargo. And don't forget, we've seen early action on Wells Fargo this year on the back of earnings. So names that have moved fairly aggressively to the upside, handing back a lot more territory as we see the, the market slump at this point. Uh, same story around tech, and you can see how these big tech names 
third in session. Amazon down 5.6%. Tesla falling. Meta, the company that we used to refer to as Facebook, down 6.2%. So right across the board. And Microsoft worth pointing out too for its impact on the major markets yesterday, including the likes of the S&P 500 to the downside. A look at futures. What are we in store for today? And this is how we're setting up for trade. We are looking for another reversal. The indications are at this hour we are down uh, roughly 240 odd points at this stage. So it does suggest that uh, the market states have not found a floor yet. I do think it's fascinating though, Jeff, because as we started out the trading week yesterday, we were talking about how European markets had fallen so aggressively last week. They had 10 odd percent were down on French and German stocks. And we saw further falls morning session yesterday, although a little bit more contained here in Europe versus the United States. It seemed to almost play catch up here. I think there's an interesting question here. Why are you selling? Why are you selling? Uh, are you selling because you're worried about where the oil price is going? Well, actually, we've seen the oil price rise here, and we know there's a lot of talk about potentially $200 a barrel, but nobody has visibility at this stage. Do you think that Procter & Gamble should be worth less than it was last week? Do you think that uh, Microsoft is worth less than it was last week? Is this now purely a reaction to the fear of what's unfolding in Ukraine and Russia and the higher oil price here? Or are we actually in the foothills of a valuation reset that started at the beginning of the year, not actually as a result of the Russia-Ukraine crisis. So I think it's very interesting for investors to ask themselves, is this just basically a knee-jerk risk aversion trade? The equity risk premium has risen, so people are stepping out of the way because they don't know what's coming and they don't want to be involved in it. Or is there something else going on here where the markets actually are just continuing that same vicious rotation and reset of valuations that we started to see in the fourth quarter of last year and emerged much more strongly at the beginning of the year? Because nobody should forget these major U.S. indices were in negative territory already at the end of February the end of January, in fact, before we even got to this Russian invasion. It's another layer on top, though, isn't it? I was thinking about all the corporates that have announced that they're pulling back from Russia. We are looking at a messy set of numbers, aren't we, for the next earnings season? All the write-downs, all the the ex- uh, extra items that uh, could actually be written off at this point and, and what that should mean for the bottom line. I think that's going to be noisy on top of the import side. We've been talking to so many CEOs about the escalation in pricing pressures already, and none of that's now abating this from the semiconductors to all of the commodities to the the main energy story that's simply just going to get worse in coming quarters yes but 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 one company's pricing pressure is another company's margin opportunity it always seems to me let's have a look at the oil price and we'll put some of these questions to bill smead because i think he's the right man to ask and we can get some more opinions about why the market is doing what the market's doing so i mentioned that 200 dollar a barrel uh, price quote. That actually comes from Bank of America. So Bank of America has put out a little bit of research where they're saying that for every uh, million barrels per day of Russian oil that gets taken off the market, that is worth another $20 on top of the current Brent price. And here we are, we're at $127 a barrel here. The argument being that if you take 5 million barrels per day plus off the market, that's how you get to your $200 uh, a barrel per day. We'll see whether that unfolds, obviously, 
but there are a lot of people out here at the moment who are just trying to outdo each other with their calls on where the oil price tops. Uh, the S&P energy um, sector, let's have a quick look at how that's performed. As you might anticipate, this is a reflection of the market trying to decide how profitable it's going to be now for many of these energy companies, particularly those that have upstream operations. And boy, there is nothing like a high energy price for smoking out all those energy producers who have spare capacity to start cranking up the wells and to get the fracking going again. Up 1.5% here on the S&P Energy Index. The opening calls for Europe. Let's have a look at uh, what is in prospect for us on the uh, European exchanges and the markets with the most sensitivity to the Russia-Ukraine story, that is Italy and Germany showing the heaviest implied downside here. The FTSE off about 75 points but we know it's an index that has oil companies, that has mining companies, that has businesses that arguably could be a beneficiary from higher energy prices. Bill Smead is with us, the CIO of Smead Capital Management. Bill, we'll get into the energy price in just a moment, but can I ask you about the market's movements over the very short term? What advice are you giving clients about what they should be doing as we see these big 100-point moves through the day? Well, it's a great question, and I'd like to tie it to a thought you had a couple of minutes ago, which is, is this really uh, just the invasion by Russia? And, and the first thing to understand is we have been going through the last year, I'd say easily the last year, the beginning of unwinding one of the greatest financial euphoria episodes in in uh, U.S. history. Uh, I think Charlie Munger calls it in totality the biggest one he's ever seen. And I think he's seen about 75 years of them. So so the, the carnage in the uh, high price to sales ratio stocks started long, uh, that, that started a year ago. And, and they have been unwinding and tearing that apart limb from limb. And that is a healthy thing. Uh, unwinding, the painful unwinding of financial euphoria is one of the most normal and healthy things that happens. Uh, one of our favorite writers, John Kenneth Galbraith, uh, explained to people in a book called The Short History of Financial Euphoria. So that's the backdrop. Then secondarily, as, a, uh, as an index, the S&P 5 index was loaded with tech and high price to sales success stories that get unwound then people start to get unhappy with the passive index, which of course starts a, 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 an unvirtuous circle, right, of selling. Um, and, and so that, that, all, that, that all was just waiting to happen. This just happened to come along partway through it. And, and so that's been our view that we're not going to have a majority of investors succeed ever uh, the, the markets are designed to move money from impatient people to patient people. And what you should be doing is a meritorious discipline with uh, good stock selection, uh, expecting that you'll have to put up with this every, once every five or six years. 
Bill, there's obviously a, a, a very significant desire to be in commodities and oil at this stage. That's the sector that's moving. But are we anywhere near a top, do you think, in terms of the headline energy price? And if so, what does that mean for the broader commodity complex? Yeah, well, a couple of things I think would be helpful. Uh, in April of 2020, commodities in dollars were the cheapest relative to stocks for 250 years. So you don't work that off in a year and a half or two years. You, 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 you more than likely, off and on for 10 to 20 years, have com commodities doing quite well. The, the second thing is, the Fed is way behind the curve, and these circumstances of dealing with the Russian invasion are only postponing the reality that the inflation is out of the bag in the United States. It's reality. 90 million millennials are now doing what 65 million Gen Xers used to be doing. Too many people with too much money chasing too few goods. Now let's tie that into the oil. Uh, because of significantly better gas mileage and more use of hybrids and electrics, uh, the oil price at 130 means of the consumer's wallet we're not yet up to 3% of their personal consumption expenditures on gasoline and energy. Uh, to give you some framework, at the peak in 08, that was 4.5% of their personal com consumption. And in 1980, it was 6.5%. So uh, this idea that we need to have a, some kind of a recession because the price of oil has gone on an inflation-adjusted basis from 250-year pits relative to stocks is ridiculousness. And what you've got is a massive number of people with most of the capital who have been chasing uh, 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 clean energy investments with no earnings and uh, a needle in a haystack and have neglected investing in oil. And now that they're all way behind taking a fire hose into a teacup, they're trying to catch up. Bill, let me probe a little bit further on the oil story because we're currently in this self-sanctioning regime, but there's talk of Western allies uh, managing to come up with sanctions on Russian oil or the Russians hitting back, whether they come first or not, with their own sanctions on sending oil to the West. What are the ramifications for central banks here? Because we've been for many months talking about the pathway for the Fed that it's going to be more aggressive than anticipated. Do you think that we're still going to get the March hike and what comes next if we do get that hike? Yeah, I, I hope I don't ruin the day for most of your viewers, but we have been writing and making the argument that we're entering the 1970s. The Vietnam War and Johnson's uh, Great Society legislation to expand federal government assistance to the poor, they called it guns and butter in the late 60s. Uh, uh, along comes the baby boomers who were 75% more people than the group before them, and you've got too much money and too many hands chasing too few goods for about, you know, 12 to 14 years. Uh, we're in one of those phases. Uh, and, and, and so, therefore, uh, the inflation that gets going like this, uh, that's dominated by, uh, by demand pull and cost push inflation, can only be killed by an abnormal animal like a Paul Volcker. Uh, and and we, we're, we're nowhere near that point. It will take three or four years of, of slow 
additional pain for the, the powers that be to recognize that we've let what we call the Wolverine uh, inflation out of the bag. Jay Paul does not seem like a, a Volcker. Thank you very much for uh, fleshing that out for us, Bill, and for joining us this morning. Bill Smead with us, the CEO at Smead Capital Management. We're going to squeeze in a quick break, but coming up on the show, French President Emmanuel Macron says he does not expect a breakthrough in talks with Russia to come anytime soon. We'll have the latest on that after the break. Ambition to me is about doing better. I think ambition creates a pathway. The best advice I can give someone starting off a career is don't have a career, have lots of careers, try loads of different things. Talk to people and put your ambition out there. I don't feel that I've hit peak ambition because it's a learning journey. CNBC is where ambition meets opportunity. What does living ambitiously mean to you? Hear it from our CNBC anchors, reporters and global business leaders on CNBC.com. French President Emmanuel Macron says he does not expect a short-term diplomatic breakthrough in talks with Russia. Speaking at a campaign event, Macron added he will continue to speak with President Putin, even though talks were, quote, difficult. Let's get out to Charlotte for a little bit more, as President Macron is also expected to chair a meeting with German Chancellor Olaf Scholz, as well as the Chinese President Xi Jinping later on today. He'll be meeting with the U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken as well. So Charlotte, a full agenda for Macron, who is now in campaign mode. Yes, absolutely. And that's how basically how he's been splitting his day yesterday. Uh, first, having this quad talks this morning. So talking with the leaders of the US, the UK and Germany to talk about, brief them on the latest from his call with President Putin that he had on Sunday. Remember, that was the 11th call between President Macron and President Putin. Of course, they say they want to keep this channel open of communication uh, with Russia. And they debriefed the Elysee afterwards, saying that how Russia and President Putin still are planning on taking control of the full uh, of Ukraine and that they will reach try to reach this objective by uh, by negotiations or by war. They say they're very much sticking to their line. And what the US have been most skeptical on this communication with uh, Russia and keeping the communication, the French the presidency has been very keen on keeping it uh, open. And they have under no illusion that President Putin will respect some of the promises. And again, in one of these campaign events, President Macron uh, was talking about the moral and political cynicism of President Putin when he opened these humanitarian corridors towards Russia. So he's been talking in all those um, campaign events. Uh, yesterday he had his first campaign event uh, in the shape of a town hall in a Parisian suburb yesterday. And he talked about the future of the relation with Russia and with President Putin. Take a listen. We are not at war with Russia. And I think that is important to say. And that is the difficulty for us. We want this war to stop. We want to put enough pressure on the Russian president and his system to stop the war. That's also why I keep talking to him like I just did yesterday. But we want to do it through sanctions, through negotiations, through international pressure. But without getting into a conflict and going to war with Russia, why not? Because that will be a world war and because it would be a world war with a nuclear endowed power, which is a great unknown in our century, our contemporary and modern times. 
So as you mentioned, Karen, today, uh, President Macron, we speak to uh, the president of China, Xi Jinping, and also we'll have a meeting with Anthony Blinken this evening in uh, Paris, of course, having all these meeting bilaterals uh, before this all-important EU leaders summit later this week in Versailles. Remember, France, again, also has the rotating EU presidency. We'll talk about how to deal with Europe's dependency on Russian energy. Of course, talk also about European defense, two positions, two topics where France has had, and President Macron have a long-standing position of how the EU needs to be more independent and build their resources in, the, in those fields. So it will be very important, this event in Versailles. Remember Versailles, where President Macron hosted President Putin just two weeks after being elected, elected in 2017, tried to be a relationship uh, with the Russian president. Of course, a very different meeting we'll have at the end of this week in Versailles. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Cho. Weekdays on CNBC.